For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandle at her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. You can be seated. We are again thankful to have you. Happy Mother's Day. Beautiful singing this morning. It's great to have a full house on Mother's Day as we honor God. And by honoring God, we say thank you to our moms. We know that moms are simply the best. Brad said it so well, even with his terrible joke about smothering. But he said it well in knowing that today is not only a great day to rejoice, but it's also sometimes a difficult day. It's a day of remembrance, so it's a day of sometimes grief and loss. But I think it's I think it's good news to remember that on this day, we serve a God who sees, who sees all of us and who sees moms in their distress, who sees moms in their good times and in their bad. I love the story of Hagar in the Old Testament, who's cast out by Abraham and she's this mom all alone and God sees her. He is, he is the God who sees and so we celebrate that today. We celebrate God. So this week, as, my, as every week that I've ever prepared a Mother's Day sermon, I need to probably give credit where credit is due. It's probably the Holy Spirit laying this on me because when I begin to think about moms, all I can think about at first of my study is my need to apologize to my own mother. And so maybe on behalf of all the boys in the house, or maybe all of us, we say, thank, we say sorry as we say thank you. Sorry, Mom, for leaving the toilet seat up. Sorry for the mess. Sorry for the many, many times I never listened. Sorry for the constant back talk. Oh, the back talk. It still continues today. I've got a bad habit of that. Sorry for the mess we left. Sorry for the disrespect. Sorry for the trash we left in your van in middle school. Sorry for the way we treated your car and drove your car as I turned 16. You may never know those stories. <laughs> but sorry, because we do love you. And I say that on behalf of everybody. As I was thinking about this also, my sweet mom, Vanda, did not send me this verse, but I was thinking about all those apologies. And this verse showed up in my daily reading this week. And I was reading it, and I thought this verse was appropriate. It's not on the screen, but it comes from Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. And I'm probably taking it out of context. But the passage says this. It says, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his mother, his mother shall take hold of him. It doesn't say by the ear, but I can imagine. And bring him to the elders at the gate of his city. Then all the men of his town are to stone him. You must purge this evil from among you. <laughs> the word of the Lord has spoken. Now I'm thankful for grace and I'm thankful this morning that we live in a time where Jesus has fulfilled the law. But thank you to the moms. Thank you. Moms are really incredible. And so to celebrate this morning before we get into scripture, here are five mom facts that we are going to get into before we begin to talking about having a mom-like faith. Five mom facts, they're random, but they're good. So there's approximately in our country, in the United States, 85.6 million mothers in this country. A new mom is made every 4.6 seconds in this country. 
bringing life into the world. And interestingly enough, although this isn't proven, 85 million is the exact number of times the average mom will hear their child say, Mom, Mom, Mom. Unless, unless your name is Mallory, Shella, Anna, Mari, or Melissa. And you will hear 80, and you will hear 85 million times a week, Mom, Mom, Mom. We're thankful for our moms that have many kids. Fact number five, uh, number two, a mom's heart, literally this is proven by science, beats for their children. Heart monitors have shown that when their child is near, especially when they're young, a mom's heart and their kid's heart begin to beat in sync. It's a beautiful connection. Fact number three, random fact, every sweater worn by Mr. Rogers on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was knit by his mother. I think that's really cool because that guy was a saint and apparently so was his mom. Fact number four, the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote in the United States was passed, as the story goes, by only one vote. It was a congressman from Tennessee who changed his vote at the last minute after he received his, a, letter, a letter from his mom that was only four words long. And it said, do the right thing. And he was responsible for passing that. That is a pretty cool story. And finally, fact number five, the word or name for mom is universal. Of course, in English, it's mom or mommy. In Mandarin and Spanish, it is mama or mama. In Iceland, in Icelandic, the hardest language on earth to learn, it's simply ma. In Hebrew, it's M. In Punjabi, which I don't even know what Punjabi is, it is ma as well. And in Vietnamese, it's meh. It's so cool to me as a final fact that mom is universal. It's as if we know how special you are. So this morning, we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthews. We're going to look at this incredible mom. It's in Matthew chapter 15, and it's this strange, difficult story of a woman begging of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, or you're following along with us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. Here's how the story begins. This is a story of Jesus and the disciples trying to get away. They're trying to go on a retreat. They need a little rest, a little R&R. And as they go north from Galilee, here's what takes place. Scripture says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, north of Galilee. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So we're going to pause as we go through this story. And here for just a minute, I want you to notice two points of context about this mom. One is this, is that in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, there is often something at work behind the scenes. And the thing at work behind the scenes here is you have two audiences at play. One, of course, is the Canaanite woman. In Mark, she's called the Syrophoenician woman. And the other is the one we miss, is Jesus is walking with his disciples. That is the other audience. Now, you need to remember this because this passage is going to seem strange if we forget that the disciples 
are hearing this conversation between the woman and Jesus. It's even going to sound offensive if you don't remember that. Mark does this a lot, but Matthew is also employing a tactic. It's called the tactic of the listener or the tactic of the learner. What you're supposed to do when you hear the gospels is never forget that you are listening to scripture or reading scripture from the shoes of a follower as well. So as interaction happens with Jesus, even as the disciples are silent, you're supposed to put on their shoes and go, how would I respond to this situation? So that's the first thing we need to remember about the context is this passage is going to feel strange unless you remember Jesus is not only teaching this woman something, he's also teaching his followers something. But the second context thing is just about the woman. This passage is going to center around this Canaanite woman, a woman who is in distress and she is coming on behalf of her daughter. But the context we need to remember is that this woman should not be talking to Jesus. She's not only not a Jewish woman, but she's also a woman who's from the region of Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities north on the Mediterranean coast in North Israel. And she has no business talking with not only a Jewish man and a Jewish man with her, but a Jewish rabbi especially. Here's a couple points of context. Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the area of Tyre and Sidon. He said this, speaking on behalf of the Jewish people, he said, the people of Tyre are our bitterest enemies. Speaking of the first century, this is context straight from Jesus's world. And then a rabbi who was famous before Jesus, Ben Sirach was his name, wrote about women at the time and about rabbis. And he said this, the sages have said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna. Now, if you don't know what Gehenna is, that is the word we translate from Greek to English as hell. That is a strong wow statement. So in other words, the first audience of this and the disciples most likely would have regarded a woman from Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman, which is interesting that she's called Canaanite because there is no Canaanites at the time, or a Syrophoenician woman, they would have been regarded as the most spiritually degraded people they could imagine. But yet, this woman has a mom-like faith, an incredible faith. She cries out, Lord, son of David. She knows something about Jesus, who he is. Have mercy on me. Now notice that. What she has is what we're going to call a mom-like faith, but she is speaking in terms that defy her stereotype. But it's also not just of how she speaks to Jesus, it's also what she asks for. There's a Christian commentator by the name of Ibn El-Tayyib, I just wanted to say that name this morning, who said about this passage in a commentary over a thousand years ago, making this connection, saying, note that the woman doesn't say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on my daughter. He says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's our first point about mom-like faith. Moms are fueled by empathy. And moms teach us 
whether we're men or women, young or old, mom-like faith teaches us to be fueled by empathy. As the daughter suffers, so does this Canaanite woman. She is in pain. And I don't believe this is in a selfish way like, Lord, take me out of this situation. Remove me from this moment. My daughter is a burden. But I think she is speaking this and crying out to Jesus in a loving way as a mom would. Her heart beats for her daughter. So she is carrying the painful suffering of her demon-possessed daughter. Now, you all know this. Empathy is different than sympathy. Empathy is feeling with someone. Empathy is a move to walk in someone's shoes. Brene Brown defines empathy in three ways. She says it's number one, it's perspective taking. When I have empathy, I'm willing to walk a mile in your shoes, to see things from your point of view, to be curious and humble. It's number two, it's a removal of judgment. It's saying I'm here to learn, not to discriminate. And number three, empathy is a recognition of somebody else's feelings, emotions, and pain. And so the woman, this is important, is not here just on behalf of her daughter. She is there with her daughter, carrying the suffering of others. She is being an advocate. She is carrying on a role saying, have mercy on me, including my child. And this is why she cries out, boldly asking for help. It's fueled by empathy. Let's keep going in the passage. Jesus, this is where the passage gets weird, did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, this is where the passage takes a weird turn, something almost out of character for Jesus. A woman crying for help, saying, help my daughter, help me. And then Jesus, in response, ignores her. He gives her what we would say silent treatment, cold shoulder But there's a reality there that I think Jesus is trying to get us to. There's a reality I think if we start to dig into this passage, we all feel. And that is that reality that silence in the face of our suffering is deafening, isn't it? Many of you know distress as a parent, as a mom, as just a human, as a person. A family breaks apart, a parent leaves, a spouse is unfaithful, the diagnosis comes back, somebody dies unexpectedly, a child chooses a path away from what we wanted for our kids. And we know what silence feels like because maybe we cry out to friends or we cry out to even the Lord himself and we were treated with silence. Well, it's in that silent space that the disciples speak up and they go, just get rid of her, Lord. She just keeps crying out after us. And the disciples here are being a little arrogant. They're not, she wasn't crying out after them. She was crying out after Jesus. But they choose to say, just push her away. Aren't we on retreat? We're not supposed to be working right now. 
And in response, it seems at first glance that Jesus sides with his disciples. When he finally speaks up after this moment of silence, we don't know how long it is. He finally just says, and it seems like he's talking straight to the woman. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you're not that. You're Canaanite, you're Syrophoenician, you are Gentile. Now at this point, you should go, what? I didn't know our Lord could be a jerk. <laughs> and that's why I've always struggled with this passage. But I think we need to look at it. Kenneth Bailey, who's this great uh, New Testament scholar, says about this passage. I'm going to give him credit for this. He says this. We often view this passage with embarrassment. A foreign woman is looking for help, and then Jesus ignores her and then insults her. And if this bothers you, Kenneth Bailey says, that's the point. It should. It's supposed to bother us because the purpose of Jesus' actions are to remind the disciples that they have some growing to do, that they need to learn something about having the kind of faith this woman has. Those, remember our second audience, is not just the woman. There is another audience at play, the silent disciple, the reader, the listener of Scripture. In this, Jesus is trying to push into a teaching moment, teaching both audiences, the woman and his disciples, and the disciples that followed his disciples, us. The disciples want this woman pushed away. They don't believe she's worthy. They've already done this. We don't know the timeline exactly, but you know from other scripture, they do this with children, right? Children come to meet Jesus and they say, push them away, get them out of here. The woman here is not just a nuisance like maybe the children were. She's a foreigner, she's pagan. What does she have to do with such an esteemed rabbi? But what Jesus is doing is exposing their prejudice. See, prejudice is that tint or hue or those goggles all of us wear. The stereotypes we give people, prejudice means if you have it, and we all do, it just means to prejudge. And what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 15 is exposing his disciples and our prejudice. But I want to keep going in the text because we'll get to our second point about mom-like faith. In response to Jesus' kind of testing her and saying, well, I was only sent for the lost sheep of Israel. Look at what happens. The woman responds, and it says, the woman came and knelt before Jesus, and she cries out again, Lord, help me. So remember, the lady's already cried out once. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. I have a daughter who is in distress because of a demon possession. And now she gets on her knees. She gets very demonstrative in her desire and her passion to have her daughter healed. So she takes it a step further. She doesn't walk away. She doesn't give up. And that's because number two, mom-like faith is not only fueled by empathy. Mom-like faith is humble. Humility, church family, is more than a quiet demeanor. I want you to think about this. Humility can sometimes be loud. Not loud as in, look at me, but loud as in, Lord, help me, which is exactly what the woman said. Humility is more than just thinking of others. 
It's also learning to be vulnerable with the needs you have as well. Because humility is simply walking with God free of pride. So 1,800 years ago, I'll tell you a story about a couple moms. 1,800 years ago, this happened. And it's incredible to me that we have this account. But two moms 1,800 years ago were arrested for their belief in Jesus. They had these great names, Perpetua and Felicity. Felicity has somehow made its way for the last 2,000 years and still around. Perpetua, don't hear that much. Perpetua, it's a great word. Perpetua, though, was this woman of nobility. She was born into wealth by her father, and she married into wealth with her husband. Her and Felicity both were young moms. Perpetua had just had a son, and Felicity was pregnant, eight months pregnant, when they both came to Christ. Perpetua was a woman of nobility, and Felicity was her maidservant. She worked in her home. But they both came to Christ, and almost immediately after they came to Christ, in faith, they were arrested for going to worship service in 203 A.D., by the emperor's rule in edict that said no Christianity in this area. It was in prison that they met another guard who was, a, who was a Christian. And they were both baptized into Christ and furthered their faith in prison. It was in prison that Perpetua, as a young mother, nursed and weaned her son, but it was also in prison that she helped Felicity give birth to her child as well. In this dire and desperate situation, Perpetua's father, a nobleman, sent word to her begging in a letter for her to lose her faith, to denounce her faith, so that her and Felicity could save their own life. And we actually have, there is in history, in Perpetua's diary, which we have, she wrote in return to her father these words. She said to her father, Father, Do you see a vase in your house, for example? I know you do. Could you call that vase any other thing than what it is? It is just a vase. So well, Father, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. On the day of their death, Perpetua and Felicity were marched into the Colosseum. They were supposed to, according to the records we have about this, to be eaten by wild animals. But as they entered, the whole audience in the Colosseum got quiet because they heard the voice of two women singing praises to God. There is records of as these women were marched in to the arena that the whole crowd could not stop staring at their face. Because it was a face and faces of peace as they sang songs. The animals did not kill them that day. And so the emperor gave the thumbs down and told his soldiers to cut them down with the sword. But seeing two women with such devotion, one Roman soldier, his arm shaking, could not do it. And in a word of gratitude... Perpetua told him, go ahead, my Lord Jesus has me. And she grabbed his arm and thrust the sword through her own body. It is rumored that many of the soldiers 
that were in the arena in the Colosseum that day followed Jesus because of these two women's devotion. It wasn't just quiet devotion. It was in front of thousands, but it was humble, mom-like faith. Let's keep going in the passage. One more section. Jesus replies after she says, have mercy on me. Help me. She's on her knees and Jesus is still going to test her. He says, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Told you this passage was going to be difficult. But the woman says in response, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, if this conversation bothers you again, it should. It's supposed to. But there's something going on in the text that we're supposed to resolve. Because we are the audience listening to this. Jesus is trying to get our hearts to be turned and move towards the woman, but also to be like the woman, to remove our stereotypes. But Jesus says this crazy thing. In her response on her knees, he goes, it's not right for me to give bread to dogs. It's well-founded and well-documented that the Jews called Gentiles dogs. It was an insult. They called them pigs or dogs. In the text, in the, in the, in the original Greek language, Jesus doesn't use the language for big dog, like scavenger dog, like Rottweiler. He uses language for puppy. What he actually says here literally is it's not right to take children's bread and toss it to the puppies. And then she in turn says, even the puppies eat crumbs from the master's table. It's a weird little passage. John Ertberg, the, the author, says this. He says, picture it like this. Imagine a local coffee shop. A little wimpy guy comes in and leaves his teacup poodle tied up outside on a leash. Then a huge tatted biker guy walks in behind him. And he taps the wimpy guy on the shoulder and says, you might want to go check on your little puppy out there. I just tied up my Rottweiler next to it. You might not have much pup left in a few minutes. The little guy orders while they're making his coffee. He comes out, he goes outside, and then he comes back in in a rush. He now taps the big biker on the shoulder, and he says, I don't know how to tell you this, but my little dog just killed your Rottweiler. (laughs) The biker is astounded, and he says, well, what? you got to be kidding me. How did this happen? And the little wimpy guy says, well, my poodle got stuck in your Rottweiler's throat. Now, the point is this. What scripture is getting at this is Jesus is working to expose his disciples' misunderstanding of who they are. And he's testing the woman also to see her level of commitment. And her response is amazing. She says to Jesus in response to his phrase that, hey, I'm not giving bread to little puppies. She says, even little pups eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now hang with me because this is so good. There is something going on here because her reply is where we're supposed to go. Oh my goodness. But of course, it's hard for us to see because not many of us have ever said this, right? Not many of us have ever had a conversation like this in these types of words. But her reply is incredible. It is faith-filled It is knowledge-filled. This woman, this Gentile foreigner who should have no understanding of God just revealed that she has a deep faith and understanding of God and Jesus. 
What do I mean? Let's remember where she's from. This woman is from Sidon. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And if you remember in Scripture, and if you go in your Bible to 1 Kings 17, there is a story of a woman who is desperate, whose child, this time a son, is about to die. She is a widow. And she has an interaction with a prophet, one of the first people in Jewish history to ever be called a master because he's the first rabbi. And it takes place, this story in 1 Kings 17, during a severe drought. And Elijah, during this severe drought of three years where it does not rain, God sends this man, Elijah, to a foreign woman in Zarephath, which is Sidon. This is the same area, same town. Now, this woman has a son. And when Elijah meets her, she tells him, all I have is enough flour and oil for one meal, one little bite of bread. We're going to bake it, we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. This isn't a woman who's well-fed. This is a woman and a son who are already starving, planning on dying. Elijah, in the story, tells her, make bread. Make bread for me, make bread for your son and for yourself. And if you do so, the oil will not run out. The flour will not run out. And she does. And there's just enough. And the next day, there's just enough. And the next day, there's just enough. Now, the idea in the text is maybe as Americans, we read that and we think that she made this meal and it was like this giant loaf of bread and she made a feast. But the idea in scripture is not that she made a giant loaf of bread. The idea is that every day that jar of oil and that bowl of flour had just enough. It had just enough. It had a daily amount. We might even call it as Christians, it was daily bread give us today enough sometime later though this boy gets sick she thinks he's dead and the Canaanite woman just like this woman in Jesus' time challenges God and says did you just come here just to get us some food for a while and then let us die she's upset she's like you got to have some mercy on us and Elijah goes in and heals him And the story comes to close with this passage. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So the widow here in Elijah's time of Zarephath learned a lesson that a crumb from a table that was coming from a master, Elijah's the first one in scripture to be a rabbi or to be called a master, was enough. Now the woman who now has come to Jesus has figured out something that the disciples have not. She has a mom-like faith. She has figured out what the woman of Zarephath and Sidon knew hundreds of years before this. That when God shows up, what he gives is enough. A crumb from the table given to a puppy will be enough. Now, if you're following, you should have your mind blown. But this is what it teaches us. Mom-like faith, which we all need to have, knows the meaning of enough. 
This woman knows that the word coming from the Lord is true. And whatever Jesus says is on behalf of God. And so he knows, this woman knows what Jesus knows and what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to know. That what he says, it will happen. And this woman incredibly has this mom-like faith to already know, even though she's a foreigner, even though everything goes against her, she knows that what Jesus has is enough. And moms, I want to say thank you for this. Mom-like faith is empathetic, it's humble, but it also knows the meaning of enough. I want to thank our moms today for fighting for what's most important. Thank you for your influence. And I want to challenge the rest of the church that this isn't just a lesson for moms. This is a lesson for all of us. I want to thank our moms today because they're the number one reason that I believe faith is shared. I think the reason this place is full today is what most of us would say number one influence is my mom or my grandma. The faith of women is incredible. And so I want to close with this quick little story. And it's this. There is a trophy business in Los Angeles that prints 10,000 of these every Mother's Day. 10,000 trophies that say world's best mom. And they sell every one of them every year. I don't know who's giving them out. I've never bought one. Maybe need to buy one next year, mom. That's what you're getting. But the irony of this trophy is this, if you've already figured it out. The first irony is it's a man standing there. That's the stupidest thing ever, right? But the second is, is there can't be 10,000 world's best moms. There can only be one, right? Well, not true. We already alluded to this in what Jeff and Nathan said about Mary. There can be 10,000 world's best moms because Moms know the secret of being the world's best. You be the world's best by treating others around you as higher or greater than you. That's how Jesus became the world's best, is because he treated everybody as a servant. He took humility on. He became a humble servant. And our job, and moms, thank you for showing Man, everybody on Facebook or social media will post, got the world's best mom. And I used to scoff at that and go, can't do that. Not everybody can have the world's best mom. I like rankings. I like to know who's first. It's just my competitive nature, right? Let's find out. Let's have a competition, right? Who really puts the mother in smother, Brad? You know, but let's, but I'm learning that it's actually true. Because every mom, just like every Christian, in whatever situation they can find themselves in, can take the nature of a servant and put others above themselves. And that's what makes the world's best mom. That's how we live with mom-like faith. If you need anything today, we are here for you. It's been a good morning and uh, hope you've been blessed today. Let's have a wonderful afternoon. Let's stand together and let's sing.